All right. What is happening, everybody? Uh, great to be back with you. I uh, am Kyle Serlo, your host here at the Golf Guide Podcast. Hope you guys are having a wonderful week. You had a great weekend. In fact, I hope it was as good as Frank Molinari's weekend. I mean, you may not have come up with, like, you know, a seven-figure paycheck over the weekend, but, uh, you know, life is good is, is what I'm trying to say. I, I, I am well. I spent the weekend down in Monterey. Uh, distributing the new Pacific Coast Golf Guide magazines to all the golf courses down there. And I got to tell you guys, it's uh, going to lots of really wonderful, beautiful golf courses and not getting to set your feet onto turf and getting to swing a golf club is damn near torture. However, it is part of the job, and uh, it was really great to see some contacts down there, see all the golf courses, and uh, had a wonderful time. And so I'm back here now uh, recording at the, uh, the Golf Guide Satellite Studios here in Chico, California, and uh, I'm getting ready to uh, head down to the Bay Area for work this week. Uh, got a couple more golf courses I have to visit and uh, deliver magazines to and some other stuff. So anyway, all is good in my universe, uh, but you know what? You're not listening to, to hear me tell you about my personal life. Um, we're here to talk about golf. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, no other than Frankie Molinari, the Italian sensation, captured the Arnold Palmer invitation this past weekend. And he did it in pretty impressive fashion. I mean, starting a Sunday five strokes back, he comes out and he fires a bogey-free 64 on Sunday. That is a 64. Oh, my God. Yeah, very impressive stuff. He caps the win with a 43-footer on 18 to shoot that 64. And a little side note, for historical context, it is the first time that a golfer has won a tournament on PGA Tour by canning the winning putt with the flagstick in. What a world we live in. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, his 64 on Sunday allowed Frankie Molinari to come from five shots back, and he ended up winning this golf tournament by two shots over Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, who also had a great uh, a great weekend at the Arnold Palmer. Granted, he only shot 71 on Sunday, so Frankie ends up beating him by seven strokes on Sunday <laughs> to come back and win by two. So absolutely incredible by Frankie Molinari. I mean, as Andy Johnson from the Fried Egg mentioned, uh, you know, you could make a very compelling case that Francesco Molinari has been the best golfer in the world uh, since last May. Obviously, he is the reigning Open champion. Uh, I think he's won four or five times now in that span. It's just uh, he, he has really come into his own. And uh, by all you know, by all means, and for everything that I've seen and read about Frank Molinari, he seems to be just a genuinely wonderful man. Um, and very, very happy for the success that he is enjoying. It seems like he has grinded a lot. He's put a lot of work in and. Uh, just very, very happy to see him. I, I don't have a lot else to say on the Arnold Palmer invitation from this past weekend. As I mentioned, I was working. I, I didn't get to watch a lot of the tournament. In fact, I barely got to watch any of the tournament live. But, uh, you know, being the uh, professional golf personality that I am, I, of course, had to do my homework and spent uh, a good hour and a half of my, my early Monday morning just digesting as many highlights and articles as I possibly could. But, uh, you know, I... That, that means I don't really have anything to share with you that isn't somebody else's opinion, so I'm not going to waste your time. So let's get on to a, a couple items of news here um, going on in the world of golf. And at the end of today's podcast, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time just talking about the one and only Dan Jenkins who passed away this past Friday, perhaps uh, in many circles regarded as the greatest golf writer of all time. Um, it's just, it just by all accounts, just a, a wonderfully fabulous and entertaining personality writer uh, whatever descriptor you want to use uh, for Dan Jenkins, assuming that it's complimentary, uh, it's probably accurate. So we'll get to Dan Jenkins later, later in the podcast. But let's go through a couple of other uh, items that uh, are going on here in the world of golf. So first one, 
Uh, Phil Mickelson has uh, waffled on participating in this weekend's Players Championship. Uh, you know, he went on the record uh, a few weeks ago saying that he doesn't even really consider it to be that special of a golf tournament anymore. He knows that obviously it's a big deal, but for him, you know, the, the majors are what counts in a couple of other tournaments that he just doesn't really care about playing in the players anymore. Well, that appears to have changed, not so much in the fact that he cares about the players, but it was, uh, you know, based on those comments, it was assumed that he may not play in the Players' Championship um, and that he would instead use that time to kind of uh, rejuvenate himself and sort of get himself more prepared for April and the Masters and, and the rest of the golf season. Well, after missing the cut at this past weekend's Arnold Palmer Invitational, uh, he decided to head down to Sawgrass and... Uh, um, via social media, uh, Twitter specifically, and Phil Mickelson, he really likes what he sees down at TPC Sawgrass and in fact says that the rough uh, down there is basically very reminiscent of Augusta, meaning that it's not super long penalizing rough, which, uh, as we know for Phil, who is not the most accurate driver uh, of the golf ball, being able to finagle his way out of situations in the long grass is a key component to his success. And... Uh, after finding out that the rough was to his liking down at TPC Sawgrass, I believe he has uh, more or less inferred that he will be participating in the Players' Championship this weekend. So that is a boon. Uh, Phil in the field, uh, regardless of how you feel about Phil Mickelson, uh, any field that includes Phil is a better uh, field of competitors than it would be without him. So uh, looking forward to seeing Phil run around TPC Sawgrass at the Players' Championship this weekend, which, of course, as many people refer to as the fifth major. Um, I... Personally, I don't really see <laughs> the Players' Championship as that much more of a special event than other events on the PJ Tour. That is purely my opinion. Um, I do like the fact that it is contested at this very um, historic and recognizable golf course every single year. Any tournament that returns to the same venue year after year for decades at a time, I, I think is great because it allows us to kind of get more familiar with the golf course. And the more familiar you are with the golf course that these guys are playing, the more you enjoy it. I mean, I think, you know, that's the reason why the Masters, for so many of us, is the best golf tournament on the major championship calendar is because over the years we've all grown so accustomed to seeing Augusta. We actually have started to learn all of, like, the little bounces and how you, the strategy you want to use when you're playing all the holes coming in on the back nine. And that is what adds to all the other wonderful things about Augusta and the Masters. And in, in that same light, you know, um, TPC Sawgrass has a little bit of that factor where we all start to recognize, obviously, you know, the Island Hole in 17 and whatnot, but, um, it should be a really entertaining and fun golf tournament to watch this weekend. Um, the field is going to be strong as always. And, uh, yeah, and that's going to include Phil. Uh, one guy who we're thinking is probably not going to be participating this weekend. It has not been confirmed hundred percent yet from what I've seen. Uh, but it's looking likely that Tiger Woods will not, um, be participating as we mentioned on last week's podcast, Tiger did withdraw from the Arnold Palmer Invitation, uh, Invitational, excuse me, uh, where he has won a record eight times, um, citing that it was some neck pain. All right, now we know that Tiger obviously missed all that time with just immense back problems, and so when we first heard that he was having neck pain, uh, it was certainly was uh, concerning. Um, but I think a lot of us were thinking, well, at least it's not the back. But then, you know, after thinking that over for a couple of days, I'm like, well, the back and the, the neck are kind of interconnected. Maybe if one is sore, maybe that means there's a problem with the others. And so I was starting to get a little bit worried. Uh, some some commentators, either on the Golf Channel and some other uh, outlets, did express that they were quite concerned about this as well. However, um, you know, Jeff Shackelford, who is one of the writers that I really, really like, I, I read a lot of his stuff, um, 
he doesn't seem to be that concerned. He thinks it's more of a uh, maintenance and just making sure that he's in peak form for Augusta and the rest of the major championship season. And also, it seems like players on tour uh, don't seem to be that worried about Tiger as well. I mean, Rory McIlroy just commented that, quote, he's just being careful, although McIlroy also noted that Woods was wearing KT tape on his upper back. Um, you know, two-time major champion Zach Johnson uh, said he was talking with Tiger via text message and, quote, he said, I know that guy well enough to know this is something he's being overly cautious of, and he should be, and he, or and he should be, because uh, of what is on the table and what's ahead of him. Uh, rest will help with the proper attention to go with that rest, end quote. Um, so again, I'm not a hundred percent sure what we're supposed to make of this as it, uh, as a, you know, as far as Tiger's concerned with his health, but I'm not that worried yet is, <laughs> is I guess where I would put it this time. And, uh, and last thing, before we leave, uh, talk about Tiger and the players championship and Phil, um, I'm sure you guys have heard about this already, but, uh, as, as you know, uh, or I should, if you don't know, then I apologize. I, I should not be presuming and assuming things, you know, as high school golf countries told me, you know. Uh, assumptions make an ass out of you and me and all all that kind of crap that you guys have heard from uncles and dads and all that for all those years but anyway the players championship has decided that it wants to try to be as as like augusta as possible uh, and that includes creating its own theme music uh again we went over this i think on another podcast but uh a video has surfaced of kind of the production that went into making this players championship theme music in Good Lord, it is sad. <laughs> I mean, the amount of resources that it seems like the PGA Tour has spent on not only creating this new theme song, but then to document the making of this new theme song is borderline absurd. Uh, they, they hired the finest and most talented uh, musicians and orchestra to uh, create this theme music for the Players' Championship. Uh, and, you know, is the song nice? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, it, it, it's perfectly, perfectly nice. Uh, is it as unique and recognizable as something like uh, Dave Loggins, you know, uh, Masters theme song? No. Um, when I heard what the new Fat Masters theme song was, I thought to myself, I was like, uh, this sounds very much like something I would hear if I was waiting in line for a ride at Disneyland. It, 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 it's, it's honestly, it just sounds very nice and very generic. Um, but, you know, again... The musicians are world class, so it's obviously some fine, finely produced music. But uh, you know, whether you're uh, waiting uh, in a line at Disneyland or you're watching guys play TPC Sawgrass, you know those two experiences might not be all that different. So who knows? Uh, but anyway, uh, be on the lookout. If you guys are listening to it, I would love to know whether or not you even notice that there's a, there's going to be a new theme song for the Players Championship this weekend. And you know what? If you guys have any opinions on that, I would love, and I mean love hear what you guys think uh you can e- you can email me at kyle at golfguide.net if you have any wonderful takes on uh on the ma- the players championship theme song i will read them on next week's podcast it, <laughs> so anyway uh that's another little note here um another note that i have here is uh we've been talking a lot about slow play these past couple of weeks obviously with jb holmes uh and his display at riviera a few weeks back it has been uh at the headlines and uh, Brooks Kepka has been very adamant about speaking out about you know about how much he um, just doesn't appreciate and really just thinks it's absolutely absurd how many guys on tour take as long as they do. Well, now the number two ranked player in the world, Justin Rose, has commented on the issue, um, and he did have some interesting things to say. Um, but although note, Justin Rose uh, 
certainly not considered a slow golfer, but he's definitely not considered a fast golfer. I think Justin Rose is pretty average in terms of speed of play um, on tour. And he says that when he's playing with guys that are wildly slow, uh, what he likes to do is he likes to watch the crowd react to how slow the guys are playing, <laughs> which I think is kind of hilarious. But also, I mean, the, the, his rationale was actually made a lot of sense to me. He's like, instead of just watching the guy and getting frustrated with how long he's taking, I watch the crowd and how just just dubious their faces are with how long these guys are taking because it makes it so I'm being entertained in between my shots rather than getting frustrated and it keeps me in a better state of mind throughout my round. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. And then the other comment that Justin Rose noted regarding the slow play is that how much, how much of a dramatic difference he thinks it is uh, going from a three ball to a two ball. So when they're playing on the West Coast swing, obviously with the more limited daylight that the West Coast events um, have to deal with in the early part of the schedule, um, they, they stack the groups into uh, groups of three. Whereas, you know, after you get out to Florida, I think starting this weekend with the Players' Championship and then kind of for the rest of the season, you are going to have guys on the weekends playing in groups of two. And he said that, you know, after playing those threesomes on the West Coast uh, for the early part of the schedule, that when it switches to two balls, it almost feels like you're running through your round. And now, as a viewer, um, I, I certainly don't really seem to notice much of a difference in the in the pace of play and how guys are getting through their round. Um, but it was interesting to hear that the players notice a large difference um, and that to them it feels like things go quite a bit faster. Um, I don't know if it means they're going to be playing in any less than four and a half hours, but hey, it, uh, it some interesting thoughts from uh, Justin Rose nonetheless. Um, next item of news here. Uh, we touched on this a few weeks ago. Keith Foster, uh, one of really the the best golf course architects when it comes to restorations uh, in the country. Keith Foster, um, you know, only I think has six or seven original designs on his own, but um, he has been associated and he has done the work at some of the most noted uh, restorations in America, especially when it comes to private clubs. Um, the Philadelphia Cricket Club, uh, which is uh, you know an old uh, tilling house design, uh, the Greenbrier um, in Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, where they host. Uh, that you know, the Greenbrier tournament every year, um, Moraine Country Club, which uh, uh, Andy Johnson of the Fried Egg uh, just continues to rave about, uh, Eastward Ho back in Massachusetts. I mean, these are some of the most prestigious and quirky and awesome Golden Age designs uh, in all of America. And Keith Foster has been the man who has led the restorations on all of them. And I've never heard a single comment from anybody that's been to those places that has anything less than superb things to say about the work that Keith Foster has done. I know here in our neck of the woods, um, I believe on the West Coast, Keith Foster only has one original design uh, on his record, but it is Dark Horse uh, in Auburn, which is on the 80 corridor on the way up to Lake Tahoe from the Bay Area, and uh, which, is a, which is a great golf course. Um, and so, by all accounts, Keith Foster, very, very good at what he does. However, um, he was just sentenced to 30 days in prison uh, because, aside from being a golf course architect, I believe he owned a store uh, that sold uh, goods, rare goods or something like that, where basically he was selling belts and other various items uh, in his store that <laughs> contained uh, products made from endangered species. <laughs> Um, Rachel Weiner from the Washington Post reports, uh, quote, he also paid a $275,000 fine. Uh, after pleading guilty, Foster lost contracts with Congressional Country Club in Bethesda and Olympia Fields Country Club near Chicago. The antique business that Foster was running was supposed to be a relatively safe outlet for Foster's extra energy. He told Golf Club Atlas in 2014, 
compared to his other hobby of mountaineering. Uh, Foster quote said, I always try to challenge myself. My wife much prefers my outpost venture to climbing, end quote. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, it's not really a laughing matter. It's just really sad. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, if this guy was selling uh, goods that contain endangered species and was doing so knowingly, um, there certainly is a, a price uh, that he's going to have to pay for that. Um, a $275,000 fine, uh, a month in jail, and basically the destruction of his reputation and his golf architecture career. I mean, shit, man, it seems really, it, it does actually seem pretty steep to me. Um, you know, I, I, I think PETA is kind of silly. Um, you know, I, I certainly uh, advocate for the protection of animals, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know what species of animals he was selling and things like that, so it's, it's tough for me to speak on the issue one way or the other, but uh, who knows? I, Keith Foster is, by all accounts, really good at his golf architecture job, um, and I hope that when this is all said and done, it doesn't mean that his uh, his life and his livelihood will be taken away forever. Um, so it would be good to see Keith Foster, uh, you know, do do his do his time. Uh, you know, pay pay the consequences for his actions, and then hopefully uh, he can find a place for himself in golf when it's all said and done. Because again, by all accounts, he's very very good at what he does, and it would almost be a disservice to the golfing industry to uh, remove someone that talented. Um, all right, and then the last thing I've got for you guys here before we jump into Dan Jenkins is uh, I just wanted to note a really interesting article that Brian Costa wrote for the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about the high-end club market and how PXG uh, and its founder, Bob Parsons, who made his uh, his, his billion, four, billion dollar fortune from uh, GoDaddy, um, is now starting to get some competition. Hanma, uh, the Japanese club maker f- uh, who just signed Justin Rose to a uh, equipment contract, is coming into the market in America in addition to other, you know, other really, really high-end Japanese club maker, Miura. And it just was interesting to read Brian's article about how this ultra-high-end golf club market is carving out a slice for itself. Um, and how, you know, there seems to be a large market of golfers that are uh, eagerly anticipating and jumping at the opportunity to spend over $5,000 on a set of golf clubs. Um for someone like me, who is more like the 99% of golfers out there, uh, it certainly seems crazy uh, to say that the golf clubs are going to make a more of a difference than your golf swing uh, is fucking ludicrous. Uh, <laughs> but it is interesting that um, for the same reason that somebody would buy a Lamborghini, you know, somebody would buy one of these sets of golf clubs. It's to show off. It's to um, feel like they're part of an exclusive club is what I, you know, th- that's what I would imagine with the rationale. I, I don't really think the technology can really be twice as good, uh, for two or three times the price. But anyway, a very interesting read. If you have a chance, go read it. Brian Costa, uh, on the wall street journal on the high end club market. Okay. And then, uh, last thing today, um, I just wanted to address, uh, the passing of Dan Jenkins, uh, again, one of the greatest uh, golf sports writers really of the last hundred years. He passed away last Friday at the age of 90. And admittedly, you know, for most of Dan Jenkins' career, I was not around. I was not alive. Um, but, you know, he was so beloved, not only by every journalist who works in golf, um, but by most of the players, too. I mean, he had a really close, great relationship with Ben Hogan, Jack Nicklaus, Tom Watson, I mean, the greats of the game. I mean, he was, um, the, you know, I think one of the main, basically, golf writers for Sports Illustrated for, you know, several decades. 
Uh, and then later in his life, he kind of slowed down. I think he wrote a weekly column for Golf Digest after he retired from Sports Illustrated and then kind of focused on writing novels. Um, you know, again, when he passed away, I knew the name Dan Jenkins. I'd read some of his articles before, but I was kind of like, wow, the the reaction to this is, is really wild. And so, um, you know, over the weekend in my spare time, I just went back and started to read as many Dan Jenkins articles as I could. Um, I read a lot of the articles that various uh, journalists had written about Dan Jenkins' life and his passing. And, you know, the fact that all of the sports writers that I look forward to reading their work the most, um, the reverence that every single one of them had for Dan Jenkins um, makes me believe, and he basically, <laughs> he's a master of his craft. I mean, that, that, that's really the most simple way to put it. Um, and his family breeds excellent sports writers. Dan Jenkins' daughter, Sally, um, Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post, is to this day actually one of the other premier sports writers in the country. Um, and she actually penned, uh, penned a piece for the Washington Post in the last couple of days talking about her father's passing, uh, his impact on her life, and just, you know, uh, commenting on his personality and the kind of person that he was. And so what I wanted to do is share a couple of quotes from Sally Jenkins' article with you. And then I'm actually going to play um, Dan Jenkins' acceptance speech for when he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2012. That would have made him, you know, about an 83-year-old man at the time. Um, but just the wit um, that this guy displays, uh, even in his elder age, um, and just the experience that he went through, really make him, in my opinion, probably one of the more fascinating figures that the golf world has ever seen. And, uh, you know, with his passing, we lose a titan. Um, but... I'm so happy that he was around because it, it seems to me like he inspired so many other great sports writers with his work that we now get to enjoy a plethora of great sports writing, uh, especially in the world of golf, um, in large part because of Dan Jenkins. So um, when I was referring to Sally Jenkins on her father, uh, I, I just wanted to share these two paragraphs with you from her article. It, if you have not read it yet, I cannot uh, recommend it enough. I mean, Sally on her own is obviously a phenomenal talent, but... Uh, writing about a subject that's so near and dear to her heart and her family. Um, it was really powerful, and it was just, it, you know, I, I found myself you know, with an ear-to-ear -ear smile while simultaneously, you know, getting a little choked up reading everything, and it, uh, it was just really, really wonderful. A really wonderful job by Sally. So uh, the first one I want to <laughs> uh, share with you, um, why even explain it? I'm, ju I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Quote, My father actually managed to make open-heart surgery funny. Uh, in fact, some of his wittiest moments have occurred in hospitals, where he spent a good deal of time. Uh, and several years ago, he was scheduled for a quadruple bypass. Uh, he sailed off in a wheelchair down the hall of the cardiac unit, bound for the operating room, and waved to his family gaily, saying, Every street's a boulevard, he called. Well, roughly three hours later, a surgeon emerged to tell us the good news, that he had required only a triple bypass surgery. When my father heard this, he grinned through his tubes and said, <laughs> I birdied the bypass. <laughs> Which, I mean, come on, that 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 is so unbelievably fantastic. Um, a guy able to find humor in those kinds of situations is the mark of uh, what I consider to be a good man and somebody that I would certainly want to be around. Um, and then this last quote here that kind of speaks more to his character, also again from Sally Jenkins' article in the Washington Post, quote, Underneath all that laughter, he was a significant writer engaged in pursuit of a profound understanding. Who can, ex who can explain the athletic heart, he asked? The humor was his style, not his substance, a kind of athletic jauntiness. 
He loved how great athletes could make excellence look nonchalant, and he strove for the same effect on the page. End quote. Um, perfectly said, Sally. So um, without me trying to butcher this anymore, I am going to go ahead and play uh, Dan Jenkins' induction speech in uh, right here. And uh, after that, the podcast is going to come to a close. So thank you guys all so much for listening to this week's episode. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Um, and without any further delay, let's get to it. Dan Jenkins, rest in peace, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy. I'm glad they put me up here first because Tiger Woods and I have an early tea time tomorrow. Uh, I really enjoyed that video. I thought it was great, and I was perfectly accurate. Uh, that vase, by the way, in another life, that thing would have been filled with scotch, but uh, at this stage of my development, it's got to be iced tea. Uh, of course, I'm delighted and overwhelmed and pleased and all those things to be taken into this society. It's a great club, and uh, I'm particularly pleased to be taken in as a vertical human. Um, <laughs> I may be the first writer that ever did that. Uh, I'm also happy about the rumor that if I wear this blazer to my neighborhood drugstore, I'll get uh, some discount on my medications. <laughs> well, the first person I want to thank, quite serious, is that everything I've had that's been good in my life uh, has come to me through the incomparable June Jenkins. She's my, my bride of 52 years, my sweetheart, my secret weapon, actually. Uh, I need to thank an awful lot of people here, and I'll try to do it as quick as I can. But first, I want to start with thanking my kids for being here, uh, my entrepreneurial sons, Marty and Danny, and my uh, successful prize-winning sports columnist for the Washington Post, Sally Jenkins. She and I agree that she's been the... She and I agree that she's been the best writer in the family for several years now. <laughs> I also want to thank all my friends who came here from Fort Worth and Colonial and Shady Oaks and New York and Boston and, and even some from Ponte Vedra and probably a few strangers that I bought drinks for at Elaine's and E.J. <laughs> Clark's in New York who became their best friend. Uh, I have to thank Dean Beeman and Tim Fincham two great commissioners who got this thing built, got this whole world of golf village done. It was a marvelous idea and a, a tremendous undertaking. And they will be thanked several times tonight, but I want to be the first to do it because, first of all, I don't know how they did it, but they did, and it's going to keep on growing. Now, I have to tell you that if you're a writer, uh, famous fleeting. Uh, a few years ago at Atlanta Airport, this guy came up to me and said, I know you. And I said, I don't think so. And he said, no, 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 you're, I've seen you. Uh, why do I know you? I said, I'm just a guy catching an airplane. He said, no, 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 I know you. you I've seen you somewhere. Who are you? And I said, well, I thought he'd maybe see me on television playing a book or something. I said, well, I'm just a, I'm a guy who writes for a national sports magazine, and I've written four or five bestsellers. And he said, well, you don't have to be sarcastic. To, uh, to justify my inclusion in this 
terrific society. I went back and looked at everybody who was in it and did some statistics. It turns out that I have known 95 of these people when they were living. Uh, I've uh, written stories about 73 of them. I've had cocktails and drinks with 47 of them, and I've played golf with 24 of them. So I'm going to somebody else try to go up against that record. Uh, just to drop a few names, some of the people I've played golf with were Ben Hogan about 40 times, Byron Nelson, Sam Sneed, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, and even Babe Zaharias. And the ladies down here, these LPGA ladies will appreciate this. I played with Babe in 1951 at Rivercrest Country Club in Fort Worth in the old Texas Women's Open. I, had the, I was playing on the teacher golf team at the time, but I was also working for the Fort Worth Press. And I went over to Babe when I found her chipping and putting around the putting green. I said, uh, are you going to play a practice round? And she just kind of looked at me. She knew me from a couple of years earlier. And uh, I said, if you're going to play a practice round, I want to play, on, play along with you. And she said, how much you got in your pocket? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess I could manage a $2 Nassau or something like that. So we played, jumped in the golf cart, played in about two and a half hours. I thought, you know, there's no lady golfer that's going to out-hit me. Well, she did, but that little low hook went out there about 275. Not only out hit me, she shot 71, beat me out $8. And, uh, but she wouldn't take the money. She said, I don't mind robbing a college kid, but I can't rob, rob a newspaper guy. We need you people. <laughs> and I know these other ladies have heard this story before, and she dropped a sort of her standard lines on me. We came around the golf cart, around the clubhouse to the putting green, and we saw George, her husband, George Saharius, who was an ex-pro wrestler, and he was one of those guys who got wider the longer you looked at him. <laughs> and she said, look at that. She said, 12 years ago, I married a Greek god. Now I'm just married to a damn Greek. <laughs> uh, as for all those majors I've covered, uh, it's obviously a record that'll never be broken because uh, one day there's not going to be any more magazines and, and newspapers that you can, in, in paper, and uh, for that matter, there's not going to be any more people. Uh, <laughs> just going to be vampires and text messages and some voice saying, turn left now. <laughs> uh, this was my 62nd Masters in a row, and that's a lot of country ham and red-eye gravy, any way you look at it. <laughs> but I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I'll be going to Olympic next month, uh, where I've su suffered several tragedies in the past as a post writer. Uh, every time I go there, Jack Flake beats Ben Hogan, Billy Casper beats Arnold Palmer, Scott Simpson beats Tom Watson, Lee Jansen beats Payne Stewart. So I'm quite sure that next month, Phil Mickelson and Rory McIlroy and uh, Bubba Watson are all going to lose in a playoff to Jack Flake's long-lost nephew. <laughs> and I'll be there to cover it on deadline. Uh, I have to uh, cut to the chase here and get around to Ben Hogan because uh, I knew him better than any other writer. I played golf with him over 40 times, all through the 1950s when he was at his peak. And, uh, he called me up one day. I used to watch him practice. He said, let's go. We go play. And uh, 
I can keep up with him a little bit, but one day in 1956, he called me at the paper on the phone and said, I want you to, I'm gonna play an exhibition for the U.S. Olympic Fund, and I want you in the foursome. And I said, I, Ben, there's gotta be somebody better than me. He said, no, you're home, well, we'll have a lot of fun. My brother will play, and Raymond Gafford will pro at Red Sea, there'll be four of us. So I go out there, I work half a day, I expected maybe a couple hundred people. There are 3,000 people lying in the first fairway at Colonial. <laughs> I somehow got off the tee, okay, down the fairway without injuring myself or anybody else. And then I topped a three-wood. Then I topped another three-wood. Then I top scraped a five-iron. And all I want to do is dig a hole and disappear. I could hear giggles in the gallery. Like, Who's this idiot? What's this, how's this guy doing here? And then I realized Ben was walking beside me as I was going up to my ball. And he gave me the greatest golf tip at the time under those conditions I've ever had. This proves he had a sense of humor. He said, you can probably swing faster if you try hard enough. <laughs> and that's a true story. I must have looked like I was swatting for some mosquitoes or something. <laughs> I, I slowed it down and got around in something under 80 or anything. But uh, It's true that uh, he offered to give me a lesson one day after we played a practice round at Colonial. We were sitting around having a nice tea or a drink or something. and. Uh, he said, you know, you, you, you can keep the ball in the fairway off the tee and you're, you're a good putter. He said, I wish I had your putting stroke, which is true. But he said, everything in between is a mystery. And I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, if you will work with me three days a week for the next four months, you might be good enough to play in the National Amateur, qualify and play the National Amateur. And I said, Ben, I said, I, I'm flattered and I, I appreciate that. And I, I'm embarrassed to have to turn down an offer to of a golf, free golf lessons from the greatest player in the world. Uh, but I just want to be a sports writer. That's all I ever wanted to be. And he looked at me like I'd seen him look at other people with that cold stare. And you don't know whether you're going to get a bullet in the head or a dagger in your heart, and you're waiting, and you wait. Seems like an eternity. And then he kind of smiled and said, well, keep working at it. <laughs> well, that's what I've been doing for the last 60 years. And uh, I guess I'll keep doing it till they I topple over. And uh, then they start to work on my tombstone. And I've already picked out two things. The first thing is going to be, I knew this would happen. <laughs> and, uh, well, I got a better one. The better one is, you guys hold it down here. I'm off to the next great adventure. Thank you all.